Welcome and thank you for joining us for another episode of the Jane Irrigation Training Series. I'm your host, Richard Rastusha, and today we're going to be talking about what is a little bit of water awareness, uh, what's happening in California, what happens to California water, and uh, maybe a lot about uh, some experience as well as some opportunities to improve. And well, why I think this is so important is oftentimes we see what happens in California uh, on regulation or on laws uh, tends to move uh, east across the country. So it's always interesting to take a look at what California is doing uh, with water and see if maybe that's um, a potential outcome for other states. Now, taking us through this uh, journey of uh, water regulation and water improvement, water conservation improvement, is Jim Loria. He's the vice president of sales and marketing for Maisie Injector Company. But Jim is uh, so much more than that title. I'm sure you have seen him around uh, on LinkedIn. He writes about water in a very uh, interesting and different fashion. I hope you've listened to some of his podcasts because uh, Jim is out there and he is making water interesting. And that's something that's frankly quite hard to do. So uh, anyway, uh, I'm always anxious to get together with Jim and hear what he has to say about water and water conservation and who's doing what and how they're doing it. It's always interesting. So uh, Jim, welcome and thanks for joining us today. Uh, thanks, Richard. It's always a pleasure. I, I always enjoy these uh, uh webinars that you put on and uh, I'm really excited about uh, making this presentation today. Yeah, well, so are we now. But the first thing I got to ask you right off the bat is, uh, isn't it a canary in the coal mine, not canary in the gold mine? I, I don't understand. Yeah, so a friend of mine said this uh, by mistake. Uh, it's known as a malaprop, and we talked about that. It's basically using a similar sounding word in the wrong context. And what I, what I thought about was uh, when I heard it about uh, California and, and the fact that while we have many, many challenges around water, there's many opportunities in a wide range of market sectors and technologies. So um, I first came up with the idea um, back around the time of the IA and you and I had dinner together and I told you I was gonna write a blog post about it. And when, you, when I told you that, you said, Jim, we gotta have you on the show to, to talk about it. So here I am. Yeah, and that's great too. And uh, we're, we're very interested in getting into that. Yeah, I wasn't sure about this canary in the gold mine. I thought it had something to do with a Gatlin Brothers uh, song <laughs> or something, but uh, not the case. <laughs> yeah, not at all, not at all. So, you know, California is the golden state and, and uh, there's a lot of reasons for it, uh, sunshine, but mostly because of the gold rush of the 1800s. And um, you had uh, Mark Erickson uh, a little while back, and he wrote The Dreamt Land, and he told some of the stories about some of the water follies that uh, California went through. One of them was actually sluicing whole mountains away, trying to search for gold. And so I wanted to bring that up. I mean, like I said, there's a lot of challenges, but there's a lot of opportunities here in California. And if we can get it right, uh, in some of these areas, then maybe some of the other places throughout the world can learn from us and adopt some of our technologies, some of our management practices, and, and become the benchmark of what other people are doing. 
So I want to start with the, the uh, circular water economy. And as I've talked about in a number of venues, the circular water economy begins and ends with agriculture. And as most of us know, and you in, and been uh, uh, presented around for a long time, uh, about 70% of the water that we humans use is used for irrigation to grow food, fiber, and, uh, and fuel. But that water that's being used and, and the uh, fertilizer nutrients that go along with it, they don't only go to the crops, but they also run off, right? They run off into groundwater, they run off into surface water. And that can be problematic because that becomes the source water for a lot of the other applications we have, residential use, industrial use, the other 30%, 20% typically to industry, 10% for residential. And so we've got drinking water, commercial water, and, that, and that, that runoff that becomes the source water that can contaminate some of the other sources of supply. And then after you complete those, you've got municipal sewage that can be recycled and reused. You've got water coming from food and beverage processes that could be recycled and reused. Oil and gas, produced water, which cleaning it up, removing the contaminants can be reused. And so if that's gonna be reused, where, where is most of that water gonna end up going? Well, it's gonna to go to the 70% that's required for irrigation. And the good news is you don't have to clean it up as much if you're not using it for drinking water, you're gonna use it for for uh, irrigation, which could have some good uh, nutrients and fertilizer already in it if, you, if you've got the right uh, uh, constituents in the water. So Jim, I have a question about that. Uh, a couple sure. of questions now. Uh, sure. One, um, what, what percentage of the irrigation water is being used for agriculture? You know, how, how do you break that down? Yeah, so I would consider it for all agriculture. I mean, for landscape, we talked about this before, Richard. For landscape, I'd say you're looking at that as more residential because really that's coming from, you know, the, the city water that for in, in urban and suburban areas, right? So most of that irrigation water is for agriculture, growing food, fiber, and fuel. Yeah, so I think there's, I, I only mentioned that, right, because I think there's a, um, there's a lot of people, and I'm all for conservation and landscape and, and, and in the cities, right, it's, that's been my job for 20 plus years, but um, uh, that alone isn't going to solve the problem. We've got uh, other big users that, uh, that have to help contribute, right? Right, right. And, and, you know, I usually say that a household is kind of a microcosm of the whole picture, right? So probably if you've got a lawn, and you're watering your trees, your, your lawn, your flowers, whatever, that's probably 70% of the water that you would use. 10% would be for drinking. And then the 20% would be for cooking, showering, all the other things, just kind of rough numbers, right? Nothing, yeah. nothing exact. Yeah, and then I'm always surprised at how many people, um, probably nobody on this uh, webinar, but how many people out there don't understand that all the water that's ever been is all the water we have now. I mean, it's just, it's a closed loop system and we're always just reusing the same water. Exactly. And uh, I, I don't think um, a lot, uh, I don't think there's a lot of public awareness of that. I, I think uh, nobody figures that out uh, and uh, without, you know, coming to a webinar or something to learn it, uh, it just doesn't come naturally to people. Right, right. And then something I presented uh, a while back on one of your uh, uh, webinars 
was this whole idea about the connection between water and, and, and ag and, and uh, carbon neutrality. And uh, the Lawrence Livermore Lab a while back uh, put this uh, um, report together, about a 200-page report on how to get to neutral, and none of it really considered agriculture. They talked about uh, things like cover crops and pyrolysis of, and creating biochar and actually putting equipment out there that would pull the uh, carbon dioxide right out of the atmosphere. And to me, I was like, well, if, you, if you're gonna do that, that's gonna require some water, right? So why not give the water to the um, farmers? And um, so I wrote this uh, op-ed piece back in, um, uh, in, in uh, uh, um, last April, and I've uh, been speaking about it ever since. And I really feel that it's an important part because really there's a lot of opportunity around that. And, and so I, I, I talk about ag tech, um, you know, ag, ag tech is defined as any innovation in agriculture aiming to improve yield, efficiency, profitability, or sustainability. And people think of ag tech as uh, drones, as, uh, um, uh, satellite imaging as robotic tractors. But for me, it's really smart irrigation. That's really where the rubber meets the road, where the water actually and nutrients and fertilizer that comes along with it actually get to the plant. And that can be a good source for, for conservation. It can also be a good source, and we'll talk more about that, for carbon capture and reduction of greenhouse emissions. So, you know, smart irrigation, precision agriculture equals distribution uniformity. And it's not only in terms of distribution uniformity, again, for the water, but it's also the nutrients and fertilizer. And I just read an article about how, if you're looking at the, the uh, uh, ability of soil to capture carbon, one of the biggest parameters is the moisture. It's moisture, not the temperature, not anything else, it's that moisture that allows the organic content to be captured. And that's an important aspect of not only of good crop growth, but also good um, uh, management of, of carbon and, and uh, the other greenhouse gases. Yeah, it's, uh, uh, it's a really good point, Jim, and a very uh, simple concept, right? This distribution uniformity. Um, and uh, we see how much it can be improved with, uh, with drip irrigation, for example. Exactly, exactly. And, and, and there's been some studies done um, on drip irrigation, all those things, yield improvement, reduction of greenhouse gas emissions, uh, just, just it's, it's, and obviously saving water, right? So there's a lot of aspects of, besides just saving water, you know, uh, uh, improving uh, crop or drop, that really is enhanced by uh, drip irrigation. So, um, when, you, when we're talking about, again, this goes back to the source water, we've heard about uh, blue baby syndrome of uh, the uh, uh, nitrates getting into the groundwater. And the idea is that, again, if you protect the source water, then you don't have to treat that source water later on down, around, uh, down the line. And it's, you're talking about, when you talk about water treatment, you're talking about chemicals, you're talking about energy, you're talking about infrastructure, so, you know, in that regard, protecting groundwater is really important. And then protecting surface water. So uh, we all heard about the uh, algae bloom in Lake Erie that almost shut down the Toledo drinking water plant. 
and they, they were threatened with cyanotoxins. And Maisie was involved in that plant very extensively. We provided a lot of the ozone equipment, and that's a rendering of what the plant looks like to, to remove these cyanotoxins from the drinking water plant. And what you see here is a lot of concrete. And concrete, I mean, that's one of the biggest sources uh, when you create, when making cement, one of the biggest sources of carbon release. And, and then steel. And that's the other big um, place where uh, you're talking about uh, greenhouse gas emissions. And, it, and not only that, you're talking about chemicals, you're talking about energy. And so, you know, by protecting, by doing what's right in the agricultural arena, you're doing a lot better job in saving these kind of things downstream, right? It's all downstream. Yeah, so I, I think what you're saying, um, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think what you're saying is um, uh, the cleaner we keep the water, the easier it is to clean up. Exactly. And exactly. the less expense there is to do that. Exactly, exactly. So yeah, and, 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 and less effort and less money and less um, greenhouse gas emissions, right? So the other thing about uh, greenhouse gases, we talked about carbon dioxide, which is by large, by, by far the largest uh, contributor to greenhouse, greenhouse gas emissions. But nitrogen's pretty potent gas. And so you've got the nitrogen inputs to, to grow. You, want, you need that for the, to improve the, the, the efficiency of growing uh, the, the yields. But not all of it stays in the plant, right? So some of it leaches out as we talked about into the groundwater. And then a lot of it also is released as, as gas via uh, ammonia, nitrous oxide, nitric oxide, nitrogen gas. So this can be pretty problematic because it's about 300 times more potent as a, uh, carbon dioxide than carbon dioxide as a greenhouse gas. And this is a pretty stunning uh, look at what is really contributed as far as nitrous oxide um, from agricultural soil management. I mean, three quarters of it is, is responsible. And then, you know, small amounts from wastewater treatment, uh, combustion of, uh, in, in creating power and chemical production and so on. But you can see what a big amount agricultural soil management contributes to nitrous oxide emissions. Yeah, what's striking to me about this uh, pie chart is that um, not so much that ag soil management is 74%, it's just the distance between 74% and 6%. Yeah, uh, it's, it is. Um, oh, wow. I, I thought there might, I thought wastewater treatment might be higher on that scale or, or something else. It's uh, that, that's what's really shocking to me. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So there is some, um, uh, effort on uh, the use of oxygenation to really reduce the amount of nitrogen emissions. And uh, uh, going back uh, to, to the 40s, uh, W. Dieterell said if we could figure out a way to efficiently oxygenate uh, the, the root zones, we could really do a good job of helping with uh, reducing that nitrogen emissions. So um, there's a couple of different ways to do it. Uh, ventilation using a compressor, but that's difficult. If you're doing a dry, I mean, you don't get the distribution uh, of the air and um, you know it can be problematic to have a compressor out there. Chemicals, you can use hydrogen peroxide, 
but it's a strong oxidizing agent. And so for two reasons, handling it is, is, can be uh, a little dangerous for uh, laborers putting it into the system. But also if you put too much in, you can end up uh, killing some of the beneficial microbes, the bacteria that really helps with the uptake of the fertilizer nutrients. Uh, there's nanobubbles generating systems. Uh, we've heard about them most recently. They do a really good job of getting those small uh, um, nanobubbles into water, um, uh, more, more suitable probably for indoor vertical farms. Um, the equipment could be a little expensive and also uh, maintenance. I mean, if you've got them out in the field, they can be a little challenging to, to maintain. And then what Maisie pr promotes is adjection. Uh, we've done a lot of work on the yield increases reduced uh, less NOx. What we found is that um, the by having good aerobic activity in the soil next to the root zone, you're doing two things. Number one, with the bubbles, you're breaking up the soil. So we call it plow without a plow, but uh, you also improve the uh, dissolved oxygen that helps the aerobic activity in the soil, the, the better uptake. And also we found that um, it helps the nitrogen fixing bacteria become more efficient. And uh, it's been proven out that you're, you're getting less nitrous oxide and some of the other nitrogen gases released using this. And just a, a little picture of, of basically how that's working. Uh, chemical free, no moving pot, parts and minimal energy and maintenance. So Jim, if, if I look at that slide just a little bit longer, sorry. Yeah, yeah uh, go ahead. So, so I'm getting uh, air injection or air ejection in my irrigation just by using my Maisie fertilizer injector? No, 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 no. It's a specially designed uh, Venturi. Um, so uh, you want about a 10% slurry of air in there. And so we design it around each uh, flow rate compared to what you would have on uh, using a fertilizer. So a completely different way of doing it. We're typically doing it through manifolds um, to be more efficient. So yeah, good question. Um, it, it, it works the same way, right? Same, you're using a motor force of water to uh, pull in, uh, in, in the fertilizer case, liquid fertilizer. But uh, when you're using air, it's a different interface, right? So with fertilizer, it's liquid to liquid um, transfer. With air, it's uh, gas to liquid. So a, a different, a different uh, technology, uh, uh, same technology, but a different uh, way of, of doing it. And I can have both set up on my system. Is that correct? Oh, yeah, yeah. But you'd want to look at it, you know, you got to look at them differently, though. They, yeah. yeah. I mean, you, yeah, you, you would use uh, fertilizer injectors, exactly, um, to pull in fertilizer instead of uh, pumping it against pressure. So uh, good advantages there. Great, thank you. Yeah, and then the other area that uh, has an opportunity is uh, indoor farms. We talked a little bit about that. Uh, crops that can be grown inside, you know, will be at some point. When we're looking at more tomatoes being grown indoors, green leafy vegetables, uh, we're looking at uh, strawberries. And then one of the biggest cash crops of, uh, of California is cannabis. And uh, more of that's being grown indoors as well. So in order to, to properly manage the, um, the, the, the water, because you want to recycle every drop of water that's going in. So there's some opportunities around designing systems like this, where you've got 
filtration, you've got ozone. You wanna definitely protect the root zones from any pathogens. And if you don't manage this water and, and treat it properly, you build a biofilm, which is a, a place that really harbors uh, the um, uh, pathogens that can be really detrimental to the uh, crops that you're trying to grow indoors. Yeah, so interesting, right? So they're capturing the, uh, the extra water, any runoff mm -hmm. from, the, from the plants and feeding it back into their nutrient mix tank. Right, exactly. And you're treating with ozone for sanitizing to kill those pathogens, filtration to take out any of the big particles. So this is a, a design by H2O Engineering. They're one of our partners. They use our equipment in the design of their systems. Yeah, well, you can certainly see a lot of advantages for that. Yeah, exactly. And then, and then you know, while the vineyards are uh, an important uh, part of uh, the water uh, as an ag in California, um, there's been some pretty uh, stringent requirements by the state water resources about the runoff and about the wastewater coming out of the wineries. And so um, they're, they're putting more pressure on them. And so we've got some applications where we use our venturis to pull in air and our nozzles to do some mixing in, uh, in these wastewater lagoons. Again, to help the aerobic activity so that you have better digestion of the wastes. And you know, if you don't and it turns septic and it becomes anaerobic, you're, re re you're releasing methane. So in terms of recycling that water and also to reduce greenhouse gases, you really wanna keep those lagoons aerobic. And as uh, one of the ways we can do it is with some of these injectors. And we do a lot of work around, around CFD modeling, computational fluid dynamic modeling. So we can make sure that the lagoons are properly mixed, that they're getting as much air in all the different areas as possible. Not completely mixed, but in, in such a way that you've got most of the lagoon aerobically treated so that you're doing the best digestion of these organic wastes as possible. Yeah, pretty interesting. Definitely in that uh, high tech area, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, we'll talk a lot more about that, the use of high tech tools to manage some of the, the, the more simple aspects of water treatment. Now, now this is one of my favorite projects uh, that uh, Maisie's been involved with, Pure Water Monterey, um, a groundwater replenishment project. And basically, this, um, th this facility they wanted to, because they're on the Pacific Ocean, and this is gonna be a kind of a theme that we talk about going forward, is that as they're pulling more water up out of the ground, and Monterey is unique because you've got, uh, you know, residential pe people living there, a nice place to live. A lot of tourists come in during the summer. Um, it's an agricultural community. So um, they're, they're pulling water out of the, the aquifer, and what's happening as you're pulling water out of an aquifer, you've got, because you're close to the Pacific Ocean, a coastline, you're getting saltwater intrusion into that aquifer as you're pulling more water out. So this pure water Monterey, what they wanted to do was take a number of different wastewaters and treat them and then put them back into the aquifer to keep some of this intrusion out and also use this water for other applications, uh, use it as source water for their drinking water. And it was a tricky situation because, so they, they wanted to treat a number of different waters. They wanted to treat irrigation runoff. 
They wanted to treat municipal sewage. They wanted to treat a uh, uh, water coming from an, uh, a uh, vegetable processing facility. They wanted to treat stormwater. I mean, now look, uh, we've got a lot of we've got these atmospheric rivers, and we're saying, well, it's great, we've got a lot of water, but now with the reservoirs full, a lot of that water is being wasted going out into the ocean. So if we could capture it and figure out where to put it. So that's what they did here. And you can see this is the type of uh, system that they had to put in, pretty intricate, going from with ozone treatment, which, which Maisie was very heavily involved in, to membranes, to reverse osmosis, because they were looking at using it as a uh, source of drinking water at some point in the future, they needed to do disinfection using UV and hydrogen peroxide, advanced oxidation process. So many, many different types of treatments. And the other tricky part was, as I said, because it's a lot of different types of, of water, you know, when you've got the tourists heavy in, in um, in the summer, you've got higher flows in the summer of municipal sewage, but then it rains in the winter, so you got more stormwater, and then the growing seasons throw that into it. So we had to do some real playing around with the design. So number one, we could move the, the flow rates up and down, and also the different types of contaminants they would see based on these different types of ways. So pretty tricky. And again, using computation fluid dynamics modeling, it, uh, it worked well. And we're, we're even looking at how we can go to the next phase because there's always the next phase, right? There's always a reason to go further. Right, so this is pretty interesting. And one thing I'm learning, you know, this is Pure Water Monterey. We had Michael Derwenko on about a month ago. He was talking about Pure Water Tampa. Mm -hmm. There's a Pure Water San Diego. This is really this whole concept of um, recycling the wastewater and making it drinkable, right? This is right. What, what we're doing. Right. Um, uh, number one, how hard is that to do? Do we really get it that clean that we can drink it? Well, if you go back to the, the previous slide, that's a pretty intricate process. I mean, you go in ozone treatment, then you go in membrane filtration, then you go in reverse osmosis, and then you go into advanced oxidation. I mean, that's a lot of steps in the process. So yeah, I mean, and people have the yuck factor, right? Now, now this isn't a direct potable drinking water. This is, this is going um, down and then Brought, brought back up. So, you know, some people feel like, well, I put that extra barrier in and I've got a little more safety. So, um, but yeah, I mean, it's a pretty intricate process, pretty advanced. Yeah. And I just want to remind everybody that um, the reason I asked Jim this is he is a chemical engineer and uh, he really does know this. And more and more, I'm seeing places like, um, you know, Las Vegas or Phoenix, Arizona, where 90% of the wastewater is treated and used for ag or for drinking water. Um, and, and their water rates are really cheap, right? So uh, inexpensive, right? 40 bucks uh, versus a month for a family of four versus $200 for a family of four in, uh, in, in California is really, I think, is going to be part of the longer term solution to our, uh, our water challenges. Right, right. And so as the first potable water re reuse project in Northern California, um, as I said, it goes down into the seaside groundwater basin, turns wastewater into safe, dependable and sustainable water supply. And it's about 30 million gallons a day. I mean, pretty substantial amount of water that's being treated. And this is the equipment that was delivered by us 
um, to do that part of the ozonation process, you know, upstream of the membranes. So. Yeah, what a beautiful then, job there. Wow. Yeah. And then uh, there's an expansion project to increase production and injection capacity. So we're already working on phase two. So they're already trying to increase the, the, the amount of water that they can process, which is all good stuff. And then there's Orange County. This is the largest um, uh, largest water recycling plant. It's won all kinds of awards. It's been around for quite a long time. I think presently now it's about 130 million gallons a day. And, uh, um, and, and basically they're taking the wastewater that's being, uh, the municipal wastewater that's being uh, produced in Orange County. Um, they, they, they probably make about, let's see, uh, maybe 350 million gallons a day. And of that 350 million, they take about 130 million and process it here to put it in the aquifer. The other one is they process it well enough that it goes out into the Pacific Ocean. So uh, they're trying to look at how they can do more, more of what they're doing with the replenishment. Um, and uh, again, it's pretty, pretty sophisticated process, uh, membranes, uh, reverse osmosis, um, advanced oxidation, to, to make it as clean as possible so that when they bring it back up, they can turn it into fresh fresh drinking water. So it's just suitable for that. Yeah, they're, they're touting a number of almost 30% now, which is uh, pretty pretty great. Now, I love your made in the USA. <laughs> what's that? That's really good. What's, what's that? The made in the USA flag down here. <laughs> <in the mall. laughs> yeah, well, made in California, right? Right. Homegrown, homegrown. So um, now, now we talk, you brought this up, San Diego Pure. It's a project we're involved with. Um, and uh, again, now this is more around toilet to tap, right? And, you know, we talk about the yuck factor and we talked about the, uh, the, the ability to turn it into safe drinking water. But people think, oh, you know, it's coming from the toilet. It's waste poopy water, they call it, you know, poop water. It's all, all these things. But one of the things we can talk about is, you know, and one of the things I've done in my, um, so, so right now it's doing about 34 million gallons a day, potable drinking water. Um, uh, we're looking at phase two to do 53 million gallons more. Um, but, you know, one of the things I always like to look at is benchmarking what other people around the world are doing. And so, um, the the um, people in Singapore have been doing some really good work around this, and it's as much about the technology, um, it's as much about the communication to the general public as it is to, to about the technology capable of doing this. And so they've had all kinds of outreach. Uh, they brought children from schools through the facility so that they grow up knowing, hey, the water's coming and, and, and being recycled, but it's clean to drink. They've got their own tap water that they, they bottle, you know, uh, and I forget what the name of it, but they, they branded it as, you know, this water that's been treated. So um, it's an education process as much as it is a, a communication process, as much as it is as, as understanding the technology that is capable of doing this kind of treatment. Yes, yeah, so we have got a question coming in uh, from yeah. one of our viewers. And the question is this, do you see recycling or desalinization as the primary direction in the future? Well, well, I love that question, right? So it's a good tee up for the next one, right? 
So we got Carlsbad that's just uh, up the block from you, right, Richard? Right. And they're doing 50 million gallons of drinking water daily. So what what the the thing about and and you know uh, you you and I know this, but I'm gonna. I'm gonna, uh, full, full disclosure, I've written and talked about uh, desalination for many years. And so um, on one, one blog post, I, I wrote about it, my views of desalination. And somebody from the political left said I, I was a uh, uh, anti-green pro-business hack, was only writing stuff to, to, to make money for my company. And then somebody on the political right said I was an uninformed environmentalist who really knew nothing about uh, desalination. So I think I've got a pretty nuanced view of, of desal. And number one, if you think about ocean water, it's got a lot of salt. It's got like 25, 30, 35,000 parts per million of salt, which is an ionic particle, which is one of the smallest particles you need to remove. So you've got a couple of ways of doing it. Thermal desal doesn't make sense for us, but reverse osmosis pushing it through a membrane does. And, but it's energy intensive. And then when you finish pushing that through and getting the, 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 the fresh water, you've got brine that's like 200, 300 parts per million of salt. You can't just dump that right back into the ocean where you got it from, it'll kill all the marine life. So you've got the energy issue and you've got the, the brine issue. And there's ways to mitigate it. The membranes are getting much more uh, um, uh, competitive, much more efficient. And so there's some good things on the horizon there. Um, and, and the brine can be mitigated. The Israelis are doing a good job on figuring out co-locating these uh, desal plants, near power plants where they can blend the water and the cooling water. I mean, it's things you can do, but if you say, you can't, you can't say that this is the only way to go. And honestly, when you look at the processes that I showed for the um, uh, municipal wastewater treatment, it's a lot less energy intensive and a lot less um, uh, chemical intensive and, and equipment intensive than desalination. So desalination has to be part of the, the uh, solution, but you can't lean heavily on it. Um, and, and we have to have all those different, we have to have water reuse, water recycling of the wastewater and desalination. Yeah. Yeah. So, right. It's going to be several solutions, not one solution, but Right now, the treated wastewater looks like a very efficient way to uh, to do this. And look, I mean, you see this, um, you've got only 50 million gallons a day that you're looking at uh, through Carlsbad, so, and the other ones are already surpassing that, and Carlsbad's been around for longer. And the other thing I want to say about desalination is this. Um, as, as we have droughts, we're looking at every possible way to, ma to, to, to make fresh water, to get fresh water. And as I said, desal is one of them, but we got to learn from Australia. What happened in Australia was they built, because they were in a drought, they built these desalination plants, hundreds of millions of dollars. And then all of a sudden it started raining and everybody was up in arms about the fact that we spent this money and now, we don't need to use it because, hey, we've got the rain just fill the reservoirs. Well, someone said, that's like buying fire insurance for your house and complaining that it didn't burn down, right? So, so, so I mean, it's an insurance policy against drought. And if we build it and we don't have to use it, 
well, we should say, well, that's good news, right? Yeah, what a great analogy. I love that. So we, we've got another question coming in and um, this person's asking about the, uh, right? We know recycled water, we get clean water to drink. What about the solids or the biosolids that come out? Can we use those for fertilization and agriculture? What, what can we do with that? Yeah, in some cases we can. I mean, you gotta be careful because if you're concentrating everything, you know, you're gonna have some contaminants in there that you don't want in the soil. So it's, it's really, you have to manage it, right? You have, to, you have to make sure that whatever you're going to put on the soil is not gonna be uh, contaminated. So yeah, so, you know, I showed those processes. So some of those processes can take like the filtrate, the upfront filtration where you're taking out a lot of the organic matter and things that can be used. But as you go further down, you, you, you want to make sure you keep the contaminants that could be problematic into the soil. You got to be really careful about that. So, um, yeah, it's got to be managed, right? Yeah. Okay, great. Thank you. So this is another project that uh, is interesting because it, it kind of skirts the line between um, uh, municipal and industry. So East Bay Mud, it's up here in, in the North, uh, uh, North Bay area in, uh, outside of San Francisco. If you ever drive over the Bay Bridge, you'll see it under there. And uh, they do a lot of processing of all the wastewater in uh, the San Francisco area. And what they did is a number of years ago, they, um, worked out a deal with the Richmond, uh, the Chevron Richmond refinery to take their wastewater, treat it to a certain level, and then send it over to the refinery to use it as cooling water. Oh. And the refinery has to use, the, it has to do some treatment as well, some, some reverse osmosis, some membrane treatment. And over the course of time, they've been using that water for cooling, for landscape irrigation, that was in the 70s, 96, they did uh, the cooling towers. Um, and, and then in 2010, I was involved in this project with another company uh, to use it for, again, boilers are a lot more uh, sensitive than, than cooling towers. So you have to be really careful about what you put through those. And then, you know, again, using it for irrigation and industrial purposes. And then, uh, you know, they're looking to, to, to expand that uh, wherever they can. So uh, a good way of taking that municipal wastewater rather than turning it into drinking water or putting it into the aquifer, actually using it in some industrial application. And then, you know, the, the state, California is a huge oil and gas producing state, right? So there's opportunities there. Uh, on the right-hand side, you can see uh, one of our uh, pieces of equipment. Again, we're doing some aeration, like I mentioned around uh, the winery wastewater. We're doing aeration of some of these uh, lagoons that are created from uh, the oil and gas industry. And you can see a little rendering on the left-hand side of how that works, where we're using Venturi's to put uh, uh, air bubbles into the lagoon on the bottom side and then circulating it as I showed before with the uh, uh, with that computational fluid dynamic modeling uh, system. Very cool. It's, Very interesting technology, that's for sure. Yeah. And so looking looking to the future, some opportunities, you know, flood floodwaters, 
uh, stormwater. That's going to be a huge thing. I mean, we, we have to look at where we can supply water, and but you're also going to have to treat that water, right, before it goes into not necessarily a, a dam or a reservoir, but if you're going to look at it, storing it down uh, in, a, in an aquifer, you really need to treat it beforehand so that it doesn't build up any biological contamination underneath. And then as, as I talked about with uh, the uh, East Bay Mud and, and uh, uh, Chevron Richmond Refinery, uh, the, the server farms, these uh, uh, computer server farms, which are storing all the data, data centers, they need a lot of cooling water. I mean, you're moving electrons, you're generating a lot of heat, so you need to cool that. And so what's being looked at is, can you co-locate these uh, server farms near uh, wastewater facilities. So you treat the wastewater. Again, you don't have to get it to drinking water. You have to, number one, get rid of any pathogens because you don't want to expose people to that. And then you also have to get rid of any problematic organics that, or, or scaling that might cause problems with the cooling systems in these data centers. But it's, it's, it's something that's, that's been started and it's getting more and more of a, a, a traction as people are looking at reducing the amount of of, of drinking water to use to cool these, uh, these server farms. That's cool because it really solves two problems. One, right, we don't have to treat all water to drinking water standards to be used. And two, we spend so much of our energy, what California 30%, close to 30% of our energy just to move water. So let's move these things closer to where the water is. We'll save, uh, it'll be a double save. Exactly, exactly. So this is a question I've always asked, you know, I've always heard, uh, this region is the Silicon Valley of water. Israel's been in Singapore, Milwaukee. I mean, and and for me, I mean, we talked a lot about the hardware that's being used in um, in water treatment, but there's a lot of software that's good. We we showed some of the the computational fluid dynamic modeling. There's a there's a lot of things that need to be done around uh, uh, the the software. And so you know, my one of my favorite topics is Leonardo da Vinci. You know, he always looked at the world, uh, the the human as a microcosm of the world. And you know, for me, I look at a water treatment system kind of like that, right? So you got part as a pump. You know, we've got these efficient pumps now, VFDs and so on, the circulatory system, piping and so on. We've got kidneys. Uh, we've got filtration systems that work like kidneys. We've got the immune system that works like disinfection uh, systems, sanitizing systems. Uh, and, and, and then, you know, we've got optical sensors that can see turbidity. We've got acoustical sensors that can hear leaks, uh, pH sensors, taste you know, if you will, base and, and, and acid. But the, the, weak, the weak link to me in controlling all this is the, is the brain, right? And so really there's opportunities around improving SCADA systems in municipal applications, what we're doing in the fields and ag, right? Irrigation and how we're measuring soil moisture and tapping that into satellite imaging. And, and so the brain is really where we've got some of the most opportunities to be more efficient. And so, you know, Silicon Valley and its software capabilities, ag tech, that, that's, that's going to be a big, a big part of what, what I see in the future. And, you know, tech needs water, water needs tech, right? We talked about the cooling water. Um, 
Uh, you know, we, we, we talk about the fact that we want to control um, these systems more efficiently. We talk about desal, right? So we talked about the, the, the technical advances in membranes, but also, you know, we've got better energy recovering devices that work feed forward feedback loops. We've got uh, the, the knowledge that, you know, when to turn it on, when to turn it off. So uh, tech, tech is going to be a really big application. So I guess, you know, at the end of the day, um, there's new hardware and there's new software to solve water and wastewater problems. And I think here in California, we're, we're real, very well situated for, for these opportunities. And if you look at it, um, you know, whether it's technologies, learning from other regions we talked about and market sectors, there's really no silver bullet. So, so we started with gold and we ended with silver. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> and, and the point is, whether you're a big company, a small company, whether you're software, hardware, uh, you know, if you're in the water space, you, you probably have some solution for one of the sectors that uh, California is facing and some of the challenges it, it looks at as far as water is concerned. Yeah, I'll tell you what's really exciting about that, Jim, uh, is a couple of things. One, we do have the technology. We can um, we can beat this uh, water challenge we're experiencing uh, with with technology and with people. Uh, so that's really great news. And then the other thing, you know, when I look at like products like Jane Unity or Jane Logic from uh, from Jane Irrigation, I think this is really fun to work in. And, and build and be a part of. So it's not just uh, we're, we're saving a water challenge, we're also creating some really cool jobs and some uh, really uh, interesting yeah. ways uh, for people to uh, improve the society in which they live. Exactly, it's exciting. There's money to be made, right, the gold, but there's also the, the feeling that, you know, we're contributing to society and uh, we're really achieving something for, for, for our state and, and for the rest of the world. So absolutely. So, you know, please uh, connect with me on LinkedIn. Like uh, Richard said at the beginning of the webinar, I'm very active. I write a lot about sustainability, a lot about water issues, and I'd uh, love to connect with you. Yeah. So, uh, Jim, thank you so much. What a great uh, education we got this afternoon. Lots of very interesting information. Really appreciate you sharing all that with us. Uh, to all of you that uh, tuned in today, I want to say thank you. I know uh, everybody's got busy days these days, so uh, I appreciate you spending a little bit of your day with us. Uh, please remember, all of our trainings are at the janesusa.com um, forward slash trainings page. Uh, you can also uh, listen to uh, any of our webinars as a podcast as well. We extract this audio out, put it up as a podcast. And I just love it to think people are out there working and educating at the same time. Uh, it, uh, it really um, gets me excited about what we do. So thank you, everybody. Um, so Jim, thanks again. We really appreciate it. And uh, we'll see everybody next week. Uh, we're going to be talking about some uh, new water reports that are uh, being generated on a, on a daily basis that uh, will be helpful to all water managers. So look for that. Uh, again, Jim, thank you. Really appreciate thank you. it. Bye now.